We're going to begin by looking at a scripture, Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. And the word times here again is kairoses. He has pre-appointed their kairoses and the boundaries of their dwellings. This simply means God has an amazing purpose for your life which is not tied to dates or calendar dates, but to opportune moments. So he has set their kairoses within boundaries. The word within boundaries here is not God creating limitations for us. The word boundaries here actually means that God has defined the environment of maximum output. Think about it. A boundary means a jurisdiction. It means a place where you will excel and be fulfilled. So the scripture here is telling us some very interesting things. That God has actually set the environments where we should function. Let's look at that scripture again. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has pre-appointed their, he has determined their pre-appointed kairoses. Acts 17.26 So if God has already set this for us, he wants us to live in kairoses. Those kairoses have boundaries, meaning they have environments in which we were meant to excel. Now these environments, as we saw in the last discussion, is not tied to a calendar date, but to opportune moments in God when massive things happen coming out of the heart and mind of God. So if this is the context in which we are supposed to live, it's important for us to understand exactly how this works. And please understand, there is no formula. We cannot now start to sit down and create formulas for how to deal with God. We can't start calculating dates and numbers. Numbers help us interpret concepts. Numerology is part of scripture. But numerology does not determine outcomes. Numerology helps us to understand patterns. That's all. Too many times we think we can use numbers to predict the future. No, we can't. We can only use numbers to understand our times. That's how it works. Now. Another scripture that helps us look at this more closely is Daniel 2, 20-21. And Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for, his, for wisdom and might are his. Verse 21. And he changes the times and the seasons. Now this is very important. Blessed be God, wisdom and might are his. He changes times. Now the word times here is interesting. This is the same word, chronos. He changes chronos and kairos. He changes times and seasons. In other words, God changes natural time and he also changes kairoses. When that happens, what are the changes? Does that mean God makes the hours less? No. Does it mean that God now shifts and works within weeks? No. It's basically saying that these times as they were set, the seasons begin to mark the activities of God. And Daniel goes on to say, within those, he removes kings and raises up kings. Now, I think we need to understand something. When we say God removes a king and raises a king, we think naturally, and we always think that the way God will remove a king is by killing one, or deposing him, or by a revolution. It's interesting, when God actually removed Saul, he stayed on the throne for 25 years. 
Why? Because God is not bound by calendar time. So the fact that God said clearly through the prophet to Samuel, uh, to, to, the, to the king Saul, through Samuel, that your kingdom has been taken from you today and given to another, even though that date in Kronos was real, Saul didn't go away from the throne that day. Saul went away from the throne during a Kairos moment. It was an opportune moment for David to ascend. That's when he actually lost the physical throne. But in terms of how God was now planning in the earth, things had changed. So when he says he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So that scripture is basically saying, listen, well, it is God who sets up kings and removes kings. While he has already set time and he has set kairoses, it is him who functions in that and he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Meaning you can't give wisdom to a fool. You must have grown in the capacity to handle wisdom before he gives you wisdom. He didn't say his words make you wise. He said he gives wisdom to the wise. Meaning wisdom is an experience you grow into and he trusts you with more of it then you can interpret things correctly. Daniel should understand this. Daniel knew God had spoken about a time when they would be free. 70 years later, it had not happened. For 70 years, Daniel had no problem with being in Babylon. For 70 years, Daniel had no crisis. But after the window of time, the Kairos moment arrived, the date that hit 70 did not change their captivity. It wasn't the 70 years. God didn't say on the 70th year, I'm going to remove you from Babylon. He said after 70 years, meaning within that chronos of time, things will run the way they do. Past that chronos, I will require interaction to bring a kairos moment into the earth because everything will be arranged for what I had said. And Daniel began to sense that kairos moment. And that caused him to pray, to ask for wisdom and insight. That was the Kairos moment that activated Cyrus, that changed the season they were there. God works in that way. So when this scripture says God sets up kings and raises kings, we have to get out of the idea that God is per se dealing with a particular king. I know the church sometimes we want to deal with a king and say God remove him. No, God doesn't just remove kings. You can't get rid of Nebuchadnezzar if Cyrus is not ready. It doesn't work that way. God would rather raise Cyrus first. He spoke of a Cyrus before he ever spoke of a Nebuchadnezzar. The purpose of a Cyrus functioning pre-existed Nebuchadnezzar. So Cyrus was not a response to Nebuchadnezzar. God wasn't responding to Nebuchadnezzar to raise Cyrus. No, God had already said, at the set Kairos, he will raise Cyrus. So that's how we have to set up understanding how God moves in time. That's why it says to those who have discernment. If you go back to the same story of Daniel, the Bible says, I, Daniel, understood wisdom, discernment, by the books of Jeremiah, what should have happened. So it took wisdom, discernment, understanding to decode the Kairos moment that God was moving into. So these are not mistakes, the interaction. That is why we have to live by a preceding word and not by a preceding word. A preceding word is what God had said one day. A preceding word was what God, God told Daniel that time when he began to seek it out. 
So this is the balance we need to understand even as we deal with the times. Now, it is absolutely dangerous and sadly many of us in the body of Christ have been living on a very dangerous edge. Dangerous in the sense that we live on the premise of prophecy that is tied to calendar dates. That is a very risky way to live. Think about it. The dates as we have them, listen, God gave us time, we give ourselves dates. Please understand the difference. God gave us time. God gave us time meaning from the moment God gave us hours, minutes and days, he gave us time. We use, so that we can understand the passage of time, we created dates, calendars, months and weeks. And that is why even today we have a conflict. There is a Roman calendar, there is a Jewish calendar, there is an Ethiopian calendar. There's a Chinese calendar. Please notice all those calendars are tied to specific nations. Now the saddest thing is to assume that any single of those calendars can determine the movements of God. And many of us have been caught in the Jewish calendar, others in the Roman calendar. And we think God is responding and God is going to move in the earth according to calendars. Scripture never told us that. Scripture told us that God will operate by fulfillment of Kairos moments. Talking even of Jesus, says, Him whom the heavens must withhold until the fulfillment of all things spoken by all the prophets. Now the reality is this. Same Jesus also now says to us that, listen, until the message of the kingdom is taught to all or preached or, or demonstrated as a witness, to all creatures, the end shall not come. There are no dates tied to those things. That's why an interesting statement Jesus said, of that time knows no man, not even the angels in heaven, because it's not dated. It has to do with Kairos moments being fulfilled. So if you understand that, then please do not be tied, do not be fooled by world events, world dates, and world timing. Because that is the wrongest way to interpret how these things work. Because once you do that, it is like trying to be the one who claims you can tell us the exact date that the rain will fall. Or the exact date that the snow will fall. No, we just begin to see signs and then we begin to interpret the signs. But interpreting signs doesn't work with our thinking, but with God's speaking. So, it is important to understand that the purposes of God are not predicted through calendar activity or human history. In fact, God's kairos says activate and direct human history. That's how human history is functioned. So if you want to function from a prophetic dimension, when the Bible speaks of the sons of Issachar and says they understood the times and the season, the Bible talks about them understanding the kairoses and how to function in the chronos. Now, until you get that right, they were not interpreting their environment. They were interpreting God's purposes, which determined how they, the rest of the brethren functioned in the environment. So it's not the other way around. We don't look at what's happening in the nations to interpret God. We look at God to interpret what he's doing in the nations. Completely different aspect of functionality. So calendar doesn't regulate God's time, but God's kairos regulates human activity. That's the key issue we need to be looking at. Now, 
To do this, let's go back to the scripture that we began looking at in the last podcast. 1 Chronicles 12.32 And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. The heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their command. So we, we begin to realize that something was unique about this particular group. They understood the times and the, the activities that were meant to be carried out within that time. So they understood the kairos, and by understanding the kairos, they knew the, the, the activity that needed to be carried out in the chronos. And because they knew their brethren were their command. The word command simply means instruction. Their brethren began to wait for them to explain what window God was moving in and that determined how they moved. You will note if you follow this particular scripture very carefully, it begins to unpack all sorts of activities. It unpacks the mighty men. It unpacks the army of David. It unpacks the movement was determined by this understanding. See, you need to understand that if you look at what's going on in this particular story, they are at Hebron. The people have come together to make David king. Remember how long ago God spoke about David being king. The Kairos has arrived. That Kairos God spoke of, your kingdom has been taken from you and given to another. When that Kairos arrives, everybody's activity is determined by that Kairos. And the fact that every tribe comes recognized by their skill, their gift, and their ability isn't enough. Their skill, gift, and ability is only valuable in how it is applied within this kairos, and that's why the Bible says, and the army of David was arranged like the army of God. There was a synchronicity between heaven and earth. Now to understand this, let's, let's, let's break down Issachar for a moment. We need to understand the law of first mention. The first time we introduced to Issachar, we introduced to Issachar in Genesis 30 verse 18. Issachar was the ninth son of Jacob and the fifth son of Leah. And I think that in itself already, if you like numbers, already carries some significant weight within it. Because this is a very strange combination of numerology in that sense. Nine in scripture always represents a spiritual realm. The nine gifts of the Spirit, the nine fruit of the Spirit, the dove with nine wings on every side. So the picture nine has always been in Scripture, the picture of the Spirit. The, the, the seven is perfection, eight is a new beginning, nine is going beyond human capacity, God moving. So you already see a spiritual connotation, Kairos. The Bible, it also tells us he was the fifth son of Leah. And we know five represents responsibility. We talk about the fivefold, we are talking about responsibility. The capacity, five is the number of your hand. It's a number of the fingers on your hand. It's a number of execution. So it tells you that here was a combination of spiritual order and natural ex execution. Equipping, functioning, operating, but operating from the spirit. These two numbers can mean not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. You see the combination. Same combination. Do not say it is my gift, my ability, my power that got me this wealth. For it is God who gives you the power to create wealth. You see that combination again. I just did that for those who like looking at numerology. There's a place for numbers. 
But you don't use numbers to interpret God. God helps you interpret him using numbers. Two different things. Now, if you look at that picture already, now let's look a little bit more at Issachar. So Issachar is the ninth son of Jacob and the fifth of Leah. Now, we need to understand that the word that it, it talks about the sons of Issachar here who had understanding, the word understanding here is a very strange Hebrew word. It's a word bina, bina. Bina is actually not one but two Hebrew meanings. One word with two Hebrew meanings. So when it says, for the sons of Issachar had understanding, the word understanding here is not one word. It's two words. So to, understand, to get what they had, you have to interpret it through those two words, two meanings, one Hebrew word. Two distinct meanings, one Hebrew word. It's so funny how you, you keep getting this from Issachar. The, the two dimensions always coming out in the functionality of the Issachar dimension. So, the first part of the word, Bina, means discernment or deep insight. So, on the one hand, they had deep insight or discernment. That's a spiritual connotation, the number nine. The second word is Yada. The word Yada, still, same word understanding, means to have knowledge and skill. So they did not only have deep insight, spiritual, they had the skill and the knowledge of how to execute that insight. They had the gift of interpreting a spiritual matter and making it function. They had the capacity to operate when we say when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They, they stood in the place that Jesus said, he who hears my word and does it. So the Issachar dimension is the capacity to have deep discernment, understanding the kairos, but also to have clarity on the actions to be executed. That is the power, the power of this understanding that they had. So, if that was how they were, now let's look at the characteristics of Issachar. And to do that, we now go to the very prophetic word that Jacob gave over his son Issachar. And this is in Genesis 49, 14. This, we are still unpacking, because it's one thing to say, and this was the tribe of Issachar, and they had understanding of the times and the seasons. We need to get into a decoding of what is the DNA of an Issachar quality. What does it mean to have that grace of functioning as an Issachar? What is that grace that causes one to be a leader or to bring direction and clarity in the things of God? Again, it's strange if you look at Issachar, for those who have been tracking with us for a while, you see the Melchizedek order, king, priest, the ability to access God, possessor of heaven and earth, and to be able to execute in the earth. You still see the same pattern right here. All right? So, Genesis 49, 14. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between two burdens. Again, you see, two dynamics, two dimensions. Why would Issachar be related to a donkey? That already should give us a picture. Carrying two burdens. The capacity to carry two dynamics, two dimensions, to live in between two environments at the same time. Now, some of the greatest events in the Bible took place in the presence of a donkey. That's very interesting. So many times it was either in the presence of a donkey or with a donkey. Abraham, when he was preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac, the donkey was there. 
He put everything on a donkey to go up to offer sacrifice. When the brothers were going to meet Joseph in Egypt, the donkey was part of the story, remember? They carried grain on the donkey. They also carried whatever money they needed on a donkey. The donkey is always in that environment when they were going into Egypt. If you continue to look at patterns of the donkey, it was the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem just one week before crucifixion. It's so funny that in every single instant, the donkey is a burden bearer. In every single instance we look at. I mean, you can look at much more. Please go do your own research. You'll find that a donkey was carrying Balaam and saved his life. Donkey is always in the picture, somehow. So the tribe of Issachar is known for the ability and readiness to build capacity and to carry heavy burdens. So this means, one, the ability to carry an internal burden, to be trusted with a burden. And number two, the capacity to carry it out to its full manifestation. So it's not just that they sat there and understood. No, no, no. They could be trusted with that level of understanding and they could be trusted with overseeing the execution of it. That's part of the Issachar dynamic. Now, it means that a donkey has the capacity to function even in the most undesirable conditions. So the tribe of Issachar has capacity, has the ability to carry weight and capacity. Let's look at some other aspects. In 1 Chronicles 7, verse 5, still talking of them, it says, and describing them, and their brethren among all the families of Issachar, the, their other brothers among all the families of Issachar, were valiant men of might, reckoned in all by their genealogies, Fosco and 7,000. So they were valiant men of might, reckoned in by all their genealogies. This thing was part and parcel of their DNA. They were valiant men of might. And I think it's important for us to break down some of these terms. When we say people are valiant men, what does that mean? It means these are people who go beyond the ordinary. They are valiant men. They, were, they go beyond the ordinary. But they don't just go beyond the ordinary. They are not self-serving. You cannot be valiant and self-centered or selfish. Donkeys do not carry burdens that they are the ones who will benefit from. They don't carry goods. I mean, think about any picture you want. Every time a donkey carries something, whatever it's carrying is not for its own benefit. So they were valiant, but they're not self-serving. But it also means they were not addicted to mediocrity. To be valiant means to push the envelope, to go out of your way to do more than is expected. To go out of your way to do not just what can be done, but to push the limits of what can be done. That's what it means to be valiant. So they were not only discerning or skilled, they had capacity. They had great capacity. And that is the only reason why the others rallied easily around them as leaders. It wasn't just because that they could speak, it's because they could lead, they could direct, they could carry heavy weight, they could be trusted, they had capacity. You know, sometimes I, I, I say this, this is my own personal speculation, so let's not pull it too far. It is interesting that David, one of David's greatest gifts is that he always inquired of the Lord. That means not only did he have an effort and a priesthood, but he had a people who could execute what was interpreted every time he inquired. And that's really what we call capacity.
It was one of David's greatest secrets. All right? So these men not only understood what God was doing, but they knew how to respond to what God was doing. They knew exactly how to do it. They're not just sitting there and saying, you know what, right now we know what God is saying. But they went beyond knowing. They turned it into strategy. Listen, we can understand the times and even understand what the proceeding word is saying. But this means nothing unless we can then act upon that information. And I think that's a crucial thing we need to understand. That it, the church, we must move away from being so excited to knowing what God is saying. God has never told us stuff so that we can know. God has always told us stuff so that they can be executed. So if you're not getting an execution about what you're hearing and knowing, then there's no point in knowing it. Because that knowledge is in the scripture. If you have it and I have it, so what? Nothing changed. So having the understanding of the times must can only be fully acceptable if we turn it into execution. Into what? Why did God let us know that word at this time? We have to be able to act upon that information. We have to be able to respond and apply the truth. So, if you think, think about where your life is functioning from, okay? And, and I want to use that illustration to help us begin to capture how is it that the kingdom is supposed to operate. Now, if you've journeyed, say, in the past few months with us, we're getting to halfway through the year, and maybe a lot of last year or before, we've spoken about various concepts. Now the problem is this. The way the kingdom is meant to function, it's meant to function incrementally, not uh, in a linear manner. Let me explain. Because we are so bound by the Kronos model of life, because we've been taught about following date, we've paired everything to dates, We've paired our education to a date. So most of us will defend how many years we have learned something, not what we have learned in those years. That's how we were taught. So we are told if you want to, like if you're in Africa, if you're in Kenya, we have X number of years. That's why we have formulas, 844, meaning eight years of primary school, four years of high school, and four years of university. So if you break that pattern, you consider yourself a failure. If you break that pattern, you consider yourself you didn't finish school. Because school to you was time. How much time you spent. And that's just been the sad thing that we've built into everything we do. We look at everything in the context of how much time was spent on it, Kronos, not how many kairoses were drawn from it. How many opportune moments. So we, we, we really, I mean, I, I came from the group that talked a lot about people who invented great things, the Thomas Edisons, how they did so many experiences over so many years, and then finally they had that eureka moment and they got their solution. The issue is what was most important was that moment, not those processes. And I know we have taught people. We have taught people that, look, do not worry how long it takes you as long as. That's not the problem here. The problem is, what are you getting out of that time? What is the value that you're drawing from that time? That's why the parable, one of Jesus' parables sometimes is confusing. 
Because it talks about different hours that people came to work, but the guy of the last hour gets the same pay as the guy of the first hour, and it sounds offensive. Why? Because you don't understand the kingdom is about outcomes, not about time. It's about achieving things. We need to start restructuring our lives in that way. In what have I been able to achieve? Now, to give an example of that, I'm holding a smartphone in my hand. Truth is, if we were to look at this smartphone in the context of time, chronos, calendar time, would break it out into parts backwards. And if we went back far enough, would break it into different products. We'd have a camera, stand alone. We'd have a calculator, stand alone. We'd have a typewriter, stand alone. We'd have all sorts of different things, lenses, glasses, handles, just name them. All of those things over time were standalone inventions. But as time went on, it was clear that there were pieces of a bigger functionality. Those items are now embedded in the smartphone. And as time goes on, we are embedding more and more and more. It's doing much more. It's now become an what you call ubiquitous product. It works in many dynamics. We have it for different reasons that fit our life. That is how we are supposed to interpret how kingdom works. Every principle we've ever taught should now be embedded in you. Every concept, whether it was faith, it should be embedded. Whether it was pride, it should be embedded. Whether it was generosity, it should be embedded. It should be layering, growing, the capacity growing. When you arrive at that, then you function in the sense of Issachar dimension. Then you have understanding of times because all these different components that God has been placing in you were taking you towards an end in the kingdom. So if we've recently been speaking about the power to create wealth, that was supposed to be layered on top of an older teaching that talked about expansion, of an older teaching that was the giants, dealt with the parasite, dealt with all those issues. None of them was isolated. The problem is, if you miss to extract the value of those seasons, it becomes more complicated to interpret these seasons, and then you have a distorted understanding of the times. Because you'll then think the times is about you. You'll think the times is about your crisis. You'll think the times is about your problems. You don't understand the times is about the execution of God's will, but because you didn't do the things you needed to do, when you needed to do them, when this demand comes, it becomes complex to you. When in truth, you should be thriving in this moment. It should be clear to you what God is saying. See, for the sons of Issachar, no matter the journey they had had, by the time they were at Hebron, and they were headed now towards what was then Jebus before it became Jerusalem, they were clear about what God was executing. And they were able to bring everybody and embed. Up to now, we just had tribes, uh, fragments, all sorts of things. Suddenly, we were creating a nation. There was a coherence coming. There was a functionality coming. Even the hierarchy of movement began to change. As you move forward, they now begin to make statements like, you know what, David, now it's time for you to take a break and sit behind. Others need to execute certain things that were normal to you. In that same moment, People, I mean, sometimes imagine, I just want you to imagine the story in that whole community. 
having a discussion with a friend of mine recently, and one of the thoughts we brought up was this reality. Imagine for a moment the guys who escaped Saul. Bible says when David was in Adullam, he was joined by people of all kinds. Everybody who was in debt, everybody who was in a crisis, everybody who was running away from Saul, from problems, joined David in the cave called Adullam. Imagine the reality of the journeys they had come. And by the time the captains of Saul were now joining David at Hebron, they didn't bring anything that made these guys intimidated because they had grown into something else. Suddenly, these were the same mighty men. The same guys were in Adullam. Something had shifted. Something had changed. They had used their chronos well. What looked like wilderness movements, what looked like David being pursued, what looked like David going through crisis was actually preparation for this moment. You know, it is funny, the Bible says, it was in Hebron that David had sons. It was now time for legacies, time for another generation to begin to come up. Why? Because that was the understanding of that time. So the question has to be, how does God move in our midst? How does God process things? What is God's interest in how we operate? I want us to think for a moment. How do I adjust myself? You know, many times if you have a watch and you know the watch hasn't been losing time, you change it. On the other hand, if you travel to another time zone, what do you do? You adjust your clock to that time zone. It takes a bit of time. Sometimes if you've flown for a number of hours, you get jet because your mind is still running on the time of home, whatever home may be. So if you're hours ahead of time, you have a problem. You fall asleep earlier. If you're moved into a zone where time is behind, you have the opposite effect. You're awake when everybody wants to go to sleep. Why? Because your internal time has not synchronized at that time with the time of where you are. Now that's why some of us are in crisis because our internal time, our environmental time has not synchronized with God's time. And so we are always outside of his time. And we are expecting things that are within his time to come to pass in our time. And that's a crisis by itself because God will not adjust to our time we, like the person who's traveled to another nation, are the ones who must adjust our clock. Now, when you travel to another nation, back to Isaka, you adjust your natural clock, which is Kronos, and then you adjust your internal clock, your biological clock, to fit into that environment so that you'll be comfortable operating in that time zone. And it takes time. So it means that, as we asked in the last broadcast, what is the time for? Not what time is it. If you know what the time is for, we will adjust both our internal clock and our external activity clock according to God's time. One of the things we can begin to do is let's query ourselves. Let's assume we're trying to adjust our clocks. What are some of the correct questions to ask ourselves and the things we need to do? One of the things is it's important for us to study yesterday. In other words, look at your past. What does that look like? What does your past look like? What does your history look like? What did you learn from it? Forget how long. You see, we spent too much focus on what we didn't do. 
But look at our past. What we missed. What we could have done. That's a wrong way. That is not learning from your past. That is being bound by your past. Let's look back and say, what did I learn? What are the valuable lessons I can take out of my past on how I function in line with what God is saying? Ask yourself, did I ever know what God is saying? Maybe I ran my past with my own concepts. Let me use an example. Many of us are managed by time. We think we manage time. Meaning, somebody somewhere in the context of culture told you what time or by what age you should be married. By what age you should have bought a house. By what age, these are the things that bind us. By what age should you have earned so much? By what age should you have graduated? See, the minute you fall into that trap, you're going to be living in regret, in offense, and you're going to hate your present. The problem with hating your present is that your present is your tomorrow's past. You're not helping. You're working against yourself. You need to sit down and say, listen, God could have called Abraham when he was much younger. He didn't. He called him in the right time. In the fullness of time. So, God's way, when God steps into our world, God is not going to debate how many years we've been here. God is going to bring you clarity. And that is why the Bible says that he will restore the years. Why? Because we think we lost them. It was a learning curve, it was a detour. A detour is never, never lost unless you refuse to come back to the road. So look at your past and ask yourself, okay, what have I been doing so far? Where has it brought me? It's time to question it. What have I done faithfully? Instead of being offended at what you've done faithfully that has brought you to no place, begin to query the validity of that and determine to change it today. So it should help you. Use yesterday as your school. What did you learn? What did you extract? What, what things do you realize are now not valuable for where you're going? That's one thing. Then, look into your future and ask yourself a question. What is the compelling future that is drawing me? What have I seen? We talked about Hebrews 11. They saw afar off. Every time God speaks to us, he's giving us a sight of the future. I'll say that again. Every time God speaks to us, he's giving us a sight of the future. God does not discuss your past. The devil does. God discusses your future. When God showed up to Abraham, he didn't tell him anything about his past. He told him about where he was taking him. Every time God shows up to speak, he points out the future. The angel shows up to Gideon and talks of the future, mighty man of valor, talking about a war that is pending, where he is going to win, not where he's living at or where he's come from. If you begin to hear what God is saying about your future, that is what should begin to govern the activities of your present. Why is that important? Because if the picture of your future begins to govern the activity of your present, you are building a new past. See, that begins to help you that tomorrow when you look back at this past, 
It will be an empowering past. It will not be a gravity that's pulling you down. It will be a rocket that's propelling you up. Because a vision of the future calls you to make an accurate decision today. That's how, that's why understanding the times and the season, please, guys, has nothing to do with studying what's going on in the world. But what's going on in the world should allow you to seek from God what's really going on in the world. Then you will understand the activity that God is actually moving. Let, let me give a picture. Imagine if you're in Egypt when Moses had shown up. And you were not privy to the discussions. You did not know that God had sent Moses to come and free them from Egypt. Imagine if you did not know the conversation that has gone on between Moses and Pharaoh, let my people go. Yeah, that's something you had prayed for. And imagine you go home and the first plague hits. What would you think is happening? How would you interpret the times and the season? If somebody asked you what was going on, what would you have said? Yet, if you knew what Moses was doing, you would accurately interpret the plague. You would know it was God shaking the system. You would know it's God dealing with the Egyptian gods. But if you do not understand the times and the seasons, you would say, listen, we've been in slavery. Now we have frogs and plagues. How badly can things get? Why? Because you don't have an insight of what's actually going on. Daniel also goes on to say that they that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So having that insight creates capacity, creates power, causes you to move in the right direction. Now, you must ask yourself today, if you do not have a proceeding word, you do not have clarity of what is going on, and let me say something about that. Many people say I don't have a proceeding word. Do you know why? Because you are always looking for a proceeding word about you. And that's why you miss God. God gives you a proceeding word about what he is doing. What season it is. Then you line up with that season. And when you line up with that season, you begin to experience the good of it. When they headed to the promised land, the word was simple. If you obey me, if you line up with what I'm saying, you will enjoy the good of the land. That's interesting. So most of us want the good of the land without knowing what season we're in. That's the picture. That's where God operates from. That's how God empowers us. That's how God moves us. That's how God takes our journeys and our thinkings and our processes to the next level of what he is doing in the earth. So times are not what we think times are. Times are not what's going on in the earth today. And I think it's important for us to begin to understand something. I said this before and I want to bring it out again. God created the heavens and the earth. God had an intent for it. We just read scriptures that say in every nation he has placed people within the earth, within contexts. Let's think for a moment as the African continent. I'm now speaking to Africa. We always have to have this idea that we are victims. 
We always have this idea. We've gone so far that we've bundled God with a colonialist. So much so that we say that the word of God is the word of the colonialist. Now, in that same context, we don't even have a vision for ourselves. The Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish. This is the problem. It is many people have taken that scripture and written their own vision. When the Bible says where there is no vision, it means when people cannot see into their kairos. It doesn't mean when people have not written down an idea of what they want. We are always taking the things that God is saying, trying to own them. When they don't work, we have a problem. Many times when we say, I have a vision, it is usually centered on my desires, what I want, what I want to accomplish. It goes even further. In some communities, and I'm talking about church communities, when people come into a church community, the vision carrier, as we say, nothing wrong with that statement, but let's be careful how we interpret it. The vision carrier says, Everybody coming here should lose their vision because there's only one vision here, mine. That's already a recipe for disaster. I'll explain why. Moses did not have a vision. God sent Moses. Let my people go. It's interesting, when Moses spoke to Pharaoh, he did not say, let God's people go. He said, let my people go. What had just happened? He had realized his vision and God's vision synchronized. Well, the same thing. And so when Moses says, let my vision, my, my people go, Moses is not being egocentric. Moses is fulfilling. He has insight of God's intent and that insight has become his reality. So when he says, my vision, that's what he means. So there's nothing wrong with a vision carrier, but the vision can't be his. Issachar carries a burden. From who? From the Lord. I know it is true. Many times. We as leaders need to understand uh, we are not sent to carry the burden of the people. And many times it is an abuse when people think our job is to carry their burden. Meaning this world is not helping me. This world is not working for me. This world is not changing my life. And we go adjusting trying to explain to them why. No, 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 no. Jesus is interesting. He says, come to me, all you who are weary, who labor, are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Oh, very interesting. Come to him. You have great burdens. Then he says, take my burden. Interesting. I thought we were getting rid of burdens. It means what you're carrying he says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. The word easy there in the Greek means my burden fits you perfectly. You were designed for this. You fit perfectly into this. We are back to the donkey. You were designed for such a time as this. Remember the statement? Go to the owner of the colt and the ass, the donkey, and say the master has need of it. Simple concept. Yet the beauty is that we were designed for this. We function in it. Now when you, as a vision carrier, are carrying the right burden, enough people will come alongside equipped to carry the same burden. 
because you can't carry it alone either. It's too big. But while they are carrying it, they also feel ownership. They are carrying their own. So everybody is fulfilling their vision within your vision, which is God's vision. There is no conflict. They all came to make David king. Different skill sets, different abilities, different capacities. Everybody was lined up according to that order. To be able to move within the time context of what God was saying. So, in the nations today, we need to ask a very important question from a prophetic dimension. What's really going on? What times are we living in? What is God doing? In the context of the Sarah's community, prior to the COVID season, we began to talk about the scriptures that God was laying in our hearts long before we knew what was going on. We were speaking about, once more, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And whatever can be shaken, will be shaken. Now, because of that context of scripture, we were able, when COVID hit, to ask what did those scriptures mean? What was God actually telling us? Those who tracked with us then will remember our context of what we interpreted was going on in the earth. We said God was creating a reset. Why? Because of mankind. And we gave our perspectives as God revealed it to us. Why am I saying those things now? Because we can see a progressive movement. So far we've seen that progressive movement. And we spoke about how when man violates God's laws, even biological laws, calamity hits the earth. And every time that happens, things break forth in the earth. So the shaking is when man thinks that man is so powerful that man can literally, like the Tower of Babel, accost God and think we can create our own destiny and our own future. And when that happens, there is a shaking in the earth. That shaking manifests as wars, as rumors of wars, as economic recession, as pandemics, and we track scripture to show those patterns happen. Yet we also said when those things happen, there is a Goshen position, which then proves to us that it is God shaking. Because you can only see preservation in a context where God is involved, even if there is a calamity. From that process, we were able to interpret further and say that God was equalizing the earth. God was restructuring, allowing man's wickedness that had reached a certain extent to be broken down so that the kingdom can begin to be birthed and be emerged in the earth. And we said it's because the church had become so church-centric that the world was running rampant and God had to emerge a generation in the earth that could be on the cutting edge to bring to pass the things that are required in the earth to bring God's purposes to completion. With that macro understanding, we begin to ask ourselves the questions. What are we meant to do in this season? And the pattern we got, understanding times and seasons, Noah. What did Noah do? Calamity pending. Flood coming. Preserve a community that is going to birth a community in the earth. From that birthing of a community in the earth, we begin to speak about the shift of economies the changes coming into the earth. And how, when Noah exited the ark, he had to change his career. He had to change his functionality. He had to operate in a new dynamic, which was not really new, because God gave him the same mandate God had given Adam. 
which proved to us that man had gone off of the original mandate, God was bringing man back into the mandate. And because that was the pattern, we began to prepare ourselves. And began to say, God is giving us a window, a window of growth, a window to build capacity, a window to, 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 to grow and prepare and upskill, change who we are. And we also looked at history. And we realized that historically, when such things had happened in the earth, Unfortunately, we did not have social media, we did not have the, the research, the Googles, the technology to look at history then. But we must be thankful that over time, that all that history has now been captured digitally. It is available. And by doing that, we're able to go back into history and see the different movements that are similar to this pattern and see what had happened. And it was clear that where the church was concerned, in every movement that happened that way, every time this happened, a number of things began to form a pattern. First of all, there was always the understanding that if there's a calamity in the earth, then the end was nigh, Jesus was coming. That created fear. It created a generation of, of the church that began to focus more on praying for the end and disassociating itself from the world, not getting involved with any activity, and when that window passed, the church was overtaken. The nations were moving ahead. Economies were thriving. The church was growing weaker and poorer. And in the consistent message of the church over those years was always a victim message, was always a survival message, and was always being controlled by everything else. And as we looked at those patterns, we began to realize that we are a unique generation in the earth. In our understanding of times and seasons, God was able to give us insight, something that generations of the church did not have. They did not have the ability to see their history, to see the patterns, to see what was happening, to see the cycles, so that we can break the cycle. So we're able to see that and realize, wait, if we look at these issues, then God is telling us something absolutely important. Every time there's a major crisis, we cry out to God, God responds by shaking the heavens and the earth. When they cried out in Egypt, he says, I have heard the cry of my people. When he responded, he responded by shaking the nation, the superpower, not by taking his people out. The shaking that destroyed Egypt was the shaking that freed Israel. And until we begin to understand that that is a pattern in God, we've seen it in many places. We saw it in Babylon. It was time to crush Babylon. It was time to free Israel. So if Babylon begins to fall, then we must understand it is not our fall. We are not falling. It is the moment God has been waiting for, for the kingdom to emerge because the promises in scripture have spoken of Isaiah 60, a generation that will stand out tall, that will finally cause the nations to come to us. Up to now, we've been going to the nations. Up to now, we've been stuck and limited to the nations. I am aware across the nations, different places, not in our normal church context, that kingdom people, kingdom entrepreneurs, kingdom politicians, kingdom business people, kingdom inventors are rising. And God is beginning to join the dots. Their relationships are coming. We are entering a global Hebron moment. Where well, all these relationships, during the pandemic, God was connecting relationships, joining the dots. People began to hear brethren they'd never heard before. They didn't know, they thought they were alone. 
People were beginning to, to talk to each other and interact outside of denominational barriers, outside of community structures, outside of asylum mentality. People were beginning to pull and discuss and talk and hear the same things God is saying. Finally, we can say, like it is said of Joseph, he's like a bough growing over every hedge. Something is happening. Babylon is being taken from every side. In the quietness of this moment, there's been a permeation of the kingdom in a way we've never seen before. And in this moment, as we head towards the edge of this, that's why we took this particular teaching, is we are coming out of this unscathed. Yes, there's been loss of life, always happened. And God doesn't desire loss of life. But we are humans, we don't always line up with God and we always find up ourselves in crisis places. But you know what? Out of this, there's an emerging that has never been seen. The generation, we've prophesied it, we've declared it, oh, it's a new day, God is doing a new thing in the earth. Finally, we've arrived at that place where that is going to happen. We have finally become that community we've spoken of for generations. We are that mighty army of Joel that is marching. We are that army that speaks about beating our plowshares into swords and our pruning hooks into spears. There's a call for war. We are taking over territory that has been said we can't go into. This is the season to penetrate and infiltrate and truly become the salt of the earth. Those are the times we are living in. This is not the time to fall down and die. This is not the time to escape. This is not the time to avoid. This is a time to bring back order. The kingdom come, that will be done. Make disciples of all nations, then the end will come. Those are the things we are focusing on. And because that is our journey, we have a completely different dynamic. We are engaging, we are moving, we are training, we are growing, we have time, people. The calendar, listen, some wars in some parts of the earth are not bringing the end. All the activities and conflicts are not bringing the end. They are simply queries. They are asking, where are the sons of God? Where are those who will bring order here? That's who we are. And that's where we're headed. That's what these times are really about, people. That's what this moment is about. We are raising generations that are going to step in and bring God's governance in the earth. Bring order in the earth. Bring clarity in the earth. History will bear this out. You know the sad thing about being in the wilderness? I said this in another broadcast. Is this. When you walk around in the wilderness, in the desert, on the sand, if you come to the same spot, you think you're in a new place. And that's what the church has done for a long time. Every generation thinks what they have is new. Every generation thinks their conflict is new. Yet, it's not. We just didn't have the history to see this has happened before. And to finally say, we will not be the ones who will go back into that pattern. Will not be like the group that arrived at the edge of Canaan and returned into the wilderness because they could not take the land that God had spoken to them about. So, what are the times? They're the times to arise and shine and bring forth. Gentiles shall come to our rising, but we must arise. In every aspect, the kingdom of God is a kingdom. It is the sole source of executive authority, of legislative authority. 
and even of military might. So we need to understand that the God of all creation has sons in the earth. This is the season. They are arising from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. You're about to see momentums and movements like we've never seen. You're about to see corruption crumble. You're about to see things that we had accepted no longer happen. We're about to see patterns break we've never seen. We're about to see unprecedented upheavals. It's already happening in the nations. Massive changes. But if you don't see God's hand, you are like the people who were living in Egypt when you saw plague after plague after plague, you thought it was chaotic. Yet there was an order to it. God was restoring a generation to take them to where he had always promised, to a place where they will fully bring back the realities of what his desire was. So my words to you is, find out what time it is. Find out what season we are in. Ask God to place you. Be like the army of David. Be like the mighty men. Find your posture. Find your position. Find your functional place within the kingdom. Connect with the Issachar dimension. Every skill that you carry, every ability, every experience, every history you have is connected to the purposes of God in this season. When we spoke and we continue to speak, which should be an embedded principle now, the power to create wealth, is not about us. To establish the covenant he swore to our forefathers. One of the things he swore to our forefathers was the knowledge of the glory of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the glory, now that is a powerful concept, not the glory. The knowledge of that glory, that's a dimension. Glory, kabod, means his reputation, his power, and his authority is going to become so manifest in the earth that if you want to compare that reality, it's like how the waters cover the sea. And that is 70% of the earth's surface. I should tell you that this is a huge matter. When the Bible says waters cover the sea, it's not surface water. It talks about volume water. That's the reality of where we are going. This is the place where I say, keep it kingdom, keep it pure.